storytelling stories from the EGA Clubhouse. All right, everybody, this is Chris Fetner, and we are telling stories at the EGA Clubhouse. Today, we have Teresa Phillips, the CEO and co-founder of Spherix, um, and uh, we're super happy to have her here. Welcome, Teresa. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. So, so Teresa, um, we have a lot to talk about, uh, but I guess the easiest starting point is what does Spherix do? What exactly uh, is the company? And and uh, what, what are the services that you offer? So Spherix is a global M&E company and helping everybody in the ecosystem from studios and direct-to-consumer platforms, distributors, et cetera, helping them culturally adapt content for both uh, compliance in countries around the world, as well as making content appealing to local audiences. So you talk, you said, um, uh, we'll get into both of those things because I think they're both relevant, but... Um, when you say compliance, what do you mean by compliance? So there's yeah a number of services stem out of the compliance realm. So it's really about understanding, you know, the the, the legal um, and the cultural and other kinds of um, policies and rules and jurisdictions related to content distribution from country to country. So making sure that um, the content number one is not going to be censored or banned. Uh, making sure that you have appropriate local age ratings and consumer advisories, um, ensuring that, you know, you have the right, you know, different elements of the product in order to distribute uh, to avoid, you know, any sort of, um, you know, censorship or, or other types of um, legal or brand jeopardy. So, Teresa, something that I know about you that maybe not other people know, and I'm curious as to how it might have influenced your thinking with Spherix is that you, you had a period of time um, while you supported NATO uh, in the U.S. Army. So how did that experience, how does that experience influence the work you've done with Spherix and, and sort of just the greater, uh, your greater sort of awareness with kind of what's going on in the world? Sure. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. So yeah, I spent uh, five years at NATO at the end of the Cold War. And in fact, uh, I reported to General uh, John R. Galvin, who was the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, and he was also the Sinkir, which is the, the Supreme, uh, the Commander-in-Chief of the European Forces. So he had about 2 million troops under him. And um, I was there, I was, I was actually his, his EA, his personal assistant, executive assistant, but he had a staff of over 100. So I was one of many people that, um, that worked the front office there with him. At, at Shape Belgium. And I was there, in fact, when, um, when the Cold War ended, Berlin Wall came down and we had the first um, visit of a former Soviet official, General Moiseev, who was equivalent to our chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. He actually visited NATO and visited my boss, which was a really monumental thing for NATO to have a USSR Soviet official um, visit. And, you know, that whole period was just, um, just, you know, the EU was forming and it was just such a, a period of, of, you know, open dialogue and collaboration and working with all the member, all the members of the NATO nation at the time, there were only about 14 or 16 and now there's 30 many years later, but day in and day out, you know, different genders and different, you know, ethnicities. This was back when there wasn't, um, you know, there, there were border authorities, right? You had to, there wasn't the EU. So you had the languages were very prominent. And so I just developed this uh, passion and understanding and respect for 
different cultures and how culture is our operating system. And it really does um, affect how we process information, how we display emotion, you know, how we, how we make judgments on everything in our lives. And so that's why spherics to me is so meaningful because it, it is about how do we uh, take our stories that can be generated anywhere in the world and how do we package those in a way that, that we can share and, and help gain respect and tolerance for each other and, and just make a, you know, a more tolerant, peaceful world. Every country, I think, in the world has a, so, some sort of review board, typically, that um, has jurisdiction over content that gets distributed into the country. Um, and that uh, that content really has to get kind of over that wall in order to be able to be distributed in that region. Is that is that kind of fair to say? Yeah, there's, well, there's about 50 uh, different review boards and it's broken down, you know, and broadcast is generally separate from theatrical and streaming. And so there's different jurisdictions, uh, but now there's kind of a convergence, obviously, of the, of the medium. And so countries are handling it differently. It used to be that, you know, a regulator's responsibility was about helping consumers um, receive sufficient information for informed choice to help them make good purchase decisions, and then also check uh, protecting children from harm. But we know that there's a few other things that they care about increasingly. One, of course, is kind of censorship. Uh, some of the many of the countries are, you know, controlling what their consumers see, uh, the types of content that they see. Uh, secondly, is, you know, protecting their local economy, the economy class of, say, producers. And so, like the EU, for example, requires 30% of content in region has to be produced locally, country of origin equals Europe. And then um, the third is is the is revenue. So just making sure that they can, uh, like in the case of Russia, they're requiring, you know, Netflix is, as an example, or any country really that, or any company really that once they uh, obtain, you know, 100,000 users, then they have to start carrying local channels. But they're, they're and, and other countries like France will, uh, tax revenue there locally. So it's it's protecting the economy, but also just uh, revenue generation. And so what your what your what Spherix does is is sort of look at review content um, preemptively before, prior to release, I assume, and then sort of counsels your clients on any issues they may have with compliance. Is that that's I'm sure that's one of the services. I, I know you probably do others as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it kind of runs the gamut. So in the, like, there's a lot of companies right now that are going international that have only distributed domestic, like on the network side, especially TV networks. And so we do everything from helping big clients establish standards and practices, helping them look at specs and standards, helping them develop a risk profile by country, understand, you know, the, the business and the priorities and what they need to do, help them profile and inventory their assets to say, what is the readiness and, and the potential risk involved in you know, current subs and dubs and localization? And then you know, for new content that's being created, um, we can screen that, we screen that content and we help, you know, you're, you're right, we help make it, um, we advise on compliance edits. One common use case is companies want to get a TV 14 equivalent or PG 13 equivalent worldwide to reach a broad audience. And they say, what do we need to edit in order to lower the age rating such that we can get that age rating? We don't want to get an 18 or a 21, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and then we also just help them steer clear of certain territories and different laws so that they don't get into any sort of you know, trouble legally or you know, expose their brand. 
And then on the catalog side where uh, content is, is already been distributed in one or more markets and we can use market signals, we actually, uh, and there's, these are like catalogs of thousands and tens of thousands of titles. For example, they may have been distributed in the UK and now they're, they want to distribute them or say the US and UK and they want to go to Canada or Brazil or Mexico or Australia. We actually can use market signals and use our applier algorithms to be able to derive the appropriate age rating and advisories without having, having actually screen that content. And so we, we have a, a, a massive database of, of titles, over 20 million titles worldwide with local content and local metadata. And so we use a whole a hybrid mix of our AI and ML technology, our kind of human-assisted processes and, and you know, our, our library, as well as our algorithms to be able to help clients uh, figure out how do they adapt that content so that it not only meets that compliance, but also hits the audience that they want um, internationally. Yes. So that, that's actually something I wanted to ask you about. So, so that's all the compliance stuff. And then you, you touched upon this sort of other, other service or other bucket of, of service that you, you offer, which is just sort of um, the, you know, cultural awareness or cultural impact of that particular piece of content. Could you give a, an example of, of something that might need to be changed for cultural reasons that, you know, that you, that may not be a compliance issue, but just might not land in certain regions. Sure. So there's a, there's a lot of examples. Um, and, and then age rating use case is one example. So it's not, you know, con- countries that classify content that don't censor it per se, it's just, it, it'll be classified at a certain age level for appropriateness. Um, and so they're not required to make changes to it, but they want to make changes to it because they want to get a low enough age rating, for example. And so whether that is, you know, they'll change uh, if it's a, you know, there might be, you know, some LGBT, LGBTQ references, they'll change maybe from husband to partner or to friend, they'll change that. Um, obviously the, the, the common censorship around, um, you know, just, you know, profanity or, or some of the violence and things, but just making sure that they're uh, the scenes uh, that they have, the relationships with the characters, the props that they use, making sure that they, that some group will not find them offensive. So to give another example, like India uh, with youth, you know, there's alcohol, there's uh, temples, there's religion. It's just cultural sensibilities. Uh, so it might not be actually censored, but it is, you know, how do we, create content that attracts our audience and they can connect with the characters and the story without having them be distracted by something that they might find incompatible with their culture. So tell me the, what was the origin story of Spherix? How did you see this as a problem? What were you, what were you doing before this? How did it get on your radar and, and what made you uh, go to the effort of, of founding a company to get it started? Sure. So, so I've been in the uh, media and tech at the intersection of media and tech for a long time, uh, decades. And uh, so in, you know, the last kind of uh, position uh, was um, we were doing a lot of metadata and doing supply chain and things um, at this company B2, which of which Spherix was a business unit. It was, it was the business unit within media entertainment and my co-founder and I, BJ Shaw, just spun it out into a separate entity. So we've been working on this for a long time. And the the genesis of it is that 
when we were working with studios and creating metadata for international distribution on platforms, principally TVOD at the time, you know, it's been, you know, 10, 12 years ago now, or maybe, maybe eight to 10 years, actually. Um, so we recognized early on that, that content is, is controlled internationally, you know, and there was going to be a lot of more to localization than just subs and dubs. And as the U.S. market became saturated or penetrated, we need there was going to be growth was only going to be obtained, um, you know, outside the U.S. And so figuring out what this cultural playbook was. And so we developed a lot of relationships with regulators. We started sending content internationally to regulators. We sent it out to about 25 different regulators to get local age ratings for theatrical and other releases. And we started understanding them, understanding their interests, their you know, capabilities, their constraints, their legislation, their jurisdiction, their enforcement. A lot of countries have jurisdiction but with no enforcement. You know, there's just it's it's a it's a mixed bag. Countries don't have the capability and the, the technology to be able to, you know, to, to handle the, the the content and the turnaround times associated. So we saw this very early. And so we effectively, you know, just data mined all of the company, all countries' cultures, everything from rules and policies and, and legislation. And then we synthesized that and normalized it to an extent and created methodology around that. So we could create this cultural playbook that became intellectual property. And I call it rules as code. And so we were able to then, you know, I wanted to, um, to have the first, you know, way for, for media to be able to create a, a title anywhere in the world from any culture in the world, and then be able to run it through an automated system that could then detect the cultural artifacts and events and that could interpret and classify them according to, you know, country of destination. So effectively, we're able to, you know, culturalize or localize these titles on the fly so that not only do they meet the requirements for um, censorship and classification, but they also become meaningful. Um, so the reason that, that, you know, I'm so passionate about this is because it's to, to us, it's really about how do we help the world share stories? How do we share culture? And so that we can achieve a, a greater understanding and tolerance and harmony in the world. Um, and that's kind of what we do. And so that's, um, that's really been the drive for us in, in, in building all this technology around it. And so talk, talk a little bit about like why you, you, you talked, you alluded to kind of brand hit, but there's a, it's not only brand hits that can, can sort of happen here. What are some of the pitfalls for stories that don't, aren't culturally sensitive that, that don't meet the compliance? What's the spectrum of fallout that can happen? The, the, the enforcement um, and sanctions anywhere from, you know, obviously bad press to fines, takedown notices, interrogations, you know, blocking and banning you from the country, and in some cases, you know, imprisonment. Um, there's been instances in Kenya and India within the last year where producers are brought to jail. And, and the, the irony of it is that in so many countries, if you look at these, um, these complaints, whether they're criminal complaints or civil complaints, whether they come from the government or from a civilian in terms of you know, this, this, we call it cultural conflict of, of media. And they feel like, you know, the citizens might feel like, oh, this, this, this movie is trying to normalize this behavior that we find abhorrent as a culture, for instance. 
So what's interesting there is if you look at these actual complaints, it's, for example, you know, intent to incite fear, intent to incite alarm. And that's the that's right, because that's what these movie producers do. They want to incite fear and alarm and they right. emotionally they want to move you. But there's so many uh, countries that have laws on the books that they don't. There's so many people in the country and they want to maintain control over you know, kind of their citizens. And so they don't want these things to be, they don't want the, all these people to be provoked around something that might not, they might not see as, as compatible with their culture. Yeah. I mean, what do you say to like filmmakers? Um, and, and this is something we can, we can talk about. I'll try to take um, whatever you're, I'll try to take a counter position just intellectually to talk through it. But what, if I'm a filmmaker, um, I'm, I'm possibly inclined to say, you know what, this is the art I made and I would rather, uh, it not be seen at all than edited because it's going to hurt my message. So if I've made a film, um, that might be offensive in a region, so what? I don't care. I, I, it's my film. It's the way I wanted it. Um, talk me off of that. If I'm a filmmaker, why, why should I care about these regions where they're going to put, they're going to impose some sensibility that I don't agree with? Um, why should I care about that market? Well, I think that's, you know, it is, it, there's an element of individual choice and they have to seek distribution and those distribution platforms and outlets have their own, you know, rules and laws of what they do. They have their own brand. They might want, you know, they might want, um, you know, they might not want to carry all types of content. So it is a consideration. If you want to produce something and you don't care if anybody else sees it, you're just doing it because you want to do it, then then go do it. But right. all the way through the supply chain and including, you know, where titles get exhibited, you look at the EU, for instance, um, they have laws that talk about actual laws, you know, for human rights and dignity and lack of judgment and discrimination. So when you get countries that are part of the EU, like Hungary, or Poland that are passing anti-LGBTQ laws, banning content and territory and making it illegal for schools to educate on, you know, transgender or other types of issues. The EU actually, the European Commission actually brought a lawsuit against them to make those laws non-enforceable. So there is a lot of conflict. It's not just the storyteller, but there's a lot of layers to this. And, um, And we see now with what's going on in the world, we see where um, you know, there is a fine line between freedom of expression and hate speech or, right. or, or speech and, and media that's, that's harmful to people. And I think um, we, we have a responsibility to not cross that line. So it is a bit of a moving target. How do you keep your product calibrated as things change over time, as, as the, the sensibilities um, evolve? That's a great question. And as you know, when you're building technology from a system standpoint, uh, it has to be based on logic. Uh, and so we will only change the system per se when the rules change. And those are they're you know generated from the countries themselves. So that's why we have relationships with regulators. We're part of the review cycle. They always come to us and ask us, we're kind of a proxy for American countries or American companies rather in terms of what can be pragmatically and practically implemented. Um, and so these, you know, they don't do anything quickly. So it takes, you know, a year, year and a half, two years sometimes for, you know, rules and laws to change. And they also, 
uh, regulators care a lot about you know, sentiment, their own public sentiment. And so they do surveys and stuff. And so there's kind of a baking in period. And then we look at um, our own, you know, definitions and rules and laws and figure out, we call those explicit rules. Um, And so again, we don't harden those and systematize them until they become, you know, enacted. Um, However, another problem that we have is a lot of these countries have laws in the books, but they don't consistently apply them. They kind of do their own thing. And so you look at an example, China, for instance, has this umbrella, you know, in the interest of national security, and they can deem any movie or film uh, in conflict with that. Um, A lot of other countries do that. And so, and they inconsistently apply it. They might have directors or platforms they don't like, and, you know, you can look at uh, precedent and there there is none. So we also have this, this other layer in our system that we call implicit rules that we can then, you know, apply an extra layer of analysis and evaluation on top of our, you know, explicit rules to to kind of account for some or accommodate some of that uh, inconsistency. I see. And actually, if I remember correctly, because you and I, we've talked about about your products in the past. um, Sometimes people will come to you and say, hey, we're getting pushback on this title is there a precedent that we can call out that's similar that got a different rating or got a different, you know, different um, finding about the content and people actually use you to help them appeal, uh, yeah. appeal finding. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the, the good thing is that when you're, we're the only ones in the world who have a system that does this everywhere else. Uh, when I, I say a commercial system, there's some big platforms that, that do it themselves, but as it relates to countries and regulators, it's all human driven. So when humans are trained to, you know, to, to analyze and evaluate, it's, it is gonna be subjective in many cases and inconsistent, you'll have training errors and other things. And so when we can show that it's logic-based and it's predictable, it's reliable, it's consistent, then they, then they tend to you know, agree with us because, because you know, it's, it's not subjective, it's very objective. And so when we do an appeal on behalf of a client, you're right, we go into the market, we look at, um, we look at precedent, we, um, we, you know, look at the rules, we analyze. And a lot of times it comes down to, you know, say that it's a something around drugs, uh, or something around violence, and it comes to a lot of context, you know, is this being glamorized or encouraged? You know, is it a main character? Um, Is it something that's, that's harmful, you know, to youth and stuff? And so we just make a real real good argument uh, as to why, you know, it, 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 it would receive a different rating. And we use facts and we use logic and things and, and we win most of them, but sometimes we don't. Yeah. Do, do you think that um, content gets judged differently when it's a international platform coming into a new market as opposed to the same piece of content that maybe was sold to a local broadcaster 10 years ago. So I guess what I'm getting at is does library content uh, perhaps just by virtue of, well, now it's an American company and they're trying to sell directly to our customers. um, Does it get a different level of scrutiny uh, because just of the platform it's on now, as opposed to, well, this was, TF1, they're a French broadcaster. They sort of understand what's within the rules of broadcasting in France. So um, something that we wouldn't have maybe looked at, now we're going to look at differently because it's now, um, you know, it's not TF1, it's Netflix or Amazon or somebody else. 
Yes, definitely. I mean, there's lots of different, you know, you know, lens aspects, dimensions. Uh, remember the broadcaster regulators are different than the film and streaming regulators for the most part. And on the broadcast side, traditionally, it's been a co-regulated environment where the distributors are responsible for the ratings and the regulators really don't get involved, uh, except if it's in conflict to a watershed, meaning, you know, a, a mature content is being displayed um, at, at an hour that, um, you know, before 9 p.m. or before 8 p.m. or whatever the watershed is for that territory. Um, so they're kind of mostly hands off. And the laws around or the rules around um, broadcast have been pretty murky not real explicit. So the, the, the regulators on the film and streaming side, they, they are focused mostly on the new content. They're focused on the content of these big global platforms and original content, new content uh, that has high popularity, you know, high uh, production value, commercial value. The catalog content that's been out there for decades and decades, they just can't keep up with it. Uh, they do, you know, there are, you know, governance programs and things, uh, but largely they're, they rely on their own consumers to escalate or to submit a complaint or something. But yeah, there's definitely different, um, different tiers and, and priorities. And, and so all of these new launching platforms like, um, and, and expanding um, platforms, but like BritBox and all these other new, new platforms really need to take notice around this compliance and cultural uh, sensitivity um, piece in order to be successful? Yeah, absolutely. Because in, in most major markets in the world, there are local entrenched players that have localized local language content and have had for you know years and decades, right? Also, you look at like Europe where the, the pay TV operators uh, provide a very valuable service um, and, you know, the the premiums are much lower than they are here. They have a lot of subsidized uh, channels, uh, the government channels even. And so they've got a strong foothold. And so with these new guys coming in over the top, uh, regardless if they're, you know, fast channels or AVOD or SVOD or whatever, um, they're basically competing in those same spaces. And so the local governments are very keen to protect their economy. Um, and a lot of times we hear, when we hear from places like Singapore or Korea or other markets, these complaints will stem from a local operator complaining to the regulator and saying, this isn't fair. This isn't a level playing field. You're letting Netflix do this or Amazon do this, but you're holding us to a different standard. And so that's, that's one um, big area. The second thing is, you know, this international expansion is, is big. And we know that coming out of COVID that um, consumers are, are, you know, they're, they're churning, you know, they're, I think we've reached the maximum and it varies from country to country, whether it's two, three, or five in terms of stacking these services. But churn is becoming a problem in the industry. And so you have to acquire and engage. Uh, and so that every new customer almost is you're taking them from some other customer. So it really is important that you're, you're compliant, you're in good graces of regulators, uh, you're trying to learn and work with uh, the local community so that you can retain your customers. All right. Well, so uh, Teresa, probably lots more we could talk about, but I think this is a great a great starting point. Um, the just the proliferation of international expansion uh, and the essential component of being culturally sensitive and and being compliant with local standards. Uh, so thank you so much, and uh, you know we hope to have Spherics back and talk more about um, so, some of the deeper. Um, uh, deep, deeper nuance to how you go about doing uh, this compliance and cultural awareness uh, um, 
uh, piece for, for content distributors. Yeah, thank you. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, Chris. You've been listening to Telling Stories from the Clubhouse. Join us next week as we discuss more topics and tales about sharing stories with the world. 